talked about King Cyrus last time who issued this decree, and uh, oh man, I'm going to have to eat crow now. Um, Hey mom, Uh, my mom called me and she was like, you know, that King Cyrus, that verse that you read was actually prophecy from way before he walked. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's look at that. And so I'm learning Bible from my mom still. And, and I went back and looked it up, and, uh, and I want to tell you a couple things about King Cyrus, actually. There is something called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a barrel-shaped cylinder uh, that was discovered. I think we got a picture of it here by an archaeologist in March of 1879. And it has been dated to the 6th century B.C. Uh, in Babylon. And so within this inscription uh, that now sits in the British Museum in London, they were able to translate uh, the, the Babylonian script, and it talks about uh, the Babel, that, that King Cyrus overcame Babylon in the year 539 B.C. There's a number of declarations that have been transcribed and translated from this piece that you're looking at right here. It talked about how Marduk, the king of the gods, was angry with the king of Babylon because of his desecration of the temples of God. And so this is kind of mixing language. And so he talks about Marduk, but because uh, that was their God that they recognized, but this is probably also then the God of the Israelites that they were uh, making note of. The king of Babylon, it says in this, uh, did more evil against God's people day by day. The king of Babylon kept people in bondage and in slavery is what it talks about. And then it goes on to say that, that God had pity on the slaves of Babylon because he cares for his people and God was looking for an upright king whom he could use to deliver them. And that brings us to the verse that we read last week, uh, which I don't think is up on the screen. Uh, but Isaiah, in chapter 44, verse 28, says this, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. These words written by Isaiah were 210 years before King Cyrus would have even been born, and yet Isaiah names him. Who would have ever thought of Cyrus? And so then he comes in, and having known this, Cyrus claimed that God chose him because God called him by name. He also said that God was by his side as a friend and a companion. So this Persian king had this unique relationship to the God of the Israelites. And he says that he was sent to capture Babylon and handed them over the uh, the king of Babylon to uh, to him without even a fight. So this is all written on that uh, Cyrus cylinder. And one last thing was he claimed that because he did all this at the command of God and God had blessed him immensely, Cyrus acknowledged that they, the Israelites, were saved because of their trust in their own God. And while he used Cyrus, it was actually their own faith that saved them. And so what a fascinating thing that this is taking place. Hundreds of years, this prophecy comes forth. Cyrus sends them off uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild, and that's where we pick it up in Ezra chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bible app, open it up or scroll down to Ezra chapter 3. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, we read... 
When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They were unified in vision. They were unified in the mission that they had. They came together in unity as one man to Jerusalem. And they had come together from scattered places all over the now uh, Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, where they had been in captivity for so long. But Cyrus had sent out the word that said, if the Lord stirs you, go home, head back to Jerusalem. And so that is where they arrived. Verse 2. Then arose uh, Jeshua, son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses and the man of God. And so the first things first is let's reestablish the worship of our God, and that took place through sacrifices at that point in time. So they first reestablished the altar. And if we jump forward into verse 6, it says, uh, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so they began offering sacrifices. And part of what uh, so many others talk about, Jeremiah included, is that there would be uh, no sacrifices made for this time that they were in captivity. And so to reestablish this worship of God, and then once that was in place, it was time to get ready to do the work. And so they, they, uh, the offerings and, and free will offerings that the people had given that we looked at last week, they went and they purchased items and they sent out word from the King Cyrus who said, from, from my own coffers, he said, I want to pay for, for the cedars and for the stone to be cut. And so Cyrus is funding much of the project along with the Israelites and they're preparing to do this work. So as we look at this, we're going to jump around a bit. I don't know if you can jump and put a finger in the book of Haggai. And so Haggai is another prophet that is speaking about this time. And and he kind of puts it down to days and weeks. Haggai, in the second year of Darius, the the Mede, who is king, that we read about in in Daniel chapter 5, 6. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So it says, in this time, a plea went out. Verse 14 of Haggai chapter 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 
So if you recall, Darius is king. Uh, he is the Mede who is king, while at the same time Persia, uh, also this dual uh, conglomeration of ruling nations. And so Darius and Cyrus are king at the same time. And the Persian side of this partnership was a little bit bigger and stronger uh, than, than the other. And so Haggai puts his dates in comparison to Darius and Mede, where Ezra often talks about Cyrus because they're doing ministry in these different areas that were controlled by the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he goes on. He says, Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. A word of encouragement. So it was only three weeks from the time uh, of this word coming to Haggai that he talked to Zerubbabel, who was the main guy in this first uh, pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Three weeks later, they're working and building the house of God. Ezra, we're going to jump back to Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after the coming of the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shatel and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, be, uh, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who came to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed Levites from 21 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And so they're putting each person, according to what their family had done even before captivity, back to work in those same forms as they return. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So he's, he's going back, and they're putting these things in place, and, and worship is taking place in the temple again. It says, all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouting from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What a scene this is as the foundations are laid and so the perimeter of the house of God is laid out and you have two different groups of people. We talked about this last week. Remember, there are some who had seen the glory of the temple before and not many of them were able to return back to do the work. And so those who had never seen the temple are excited and they're praising God and they're singing with shouts of joy that they had been able to establish a place where God's presence could reside and they were singing and honoring this. But the old men who had seen the glory of the temple before wept bitterly. 
Because they had seen what it had looked like. They had seen that this new outline wasn't going to match the size and the scope of the previous temple and their hearts were broken and this dual thing of people celebrating and mourning is taking place at the same time. But see, God had a different view of what was to come. Sometimes we as humans see things in our own, uh, in our own senses and, and what makes sense to us. Back in Haggai chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Haggai's speaking directly to this moment. It is not as nothing. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Like this isn't anything in comparison to what you had seen before. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. Then he goes on in verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Even though it doesn't look the same, God says, this is going to be more glorious than the one that came before. And he's actually not only talking about the temple that's being built, but about the new covenant, about a new time when all would be welcomed into God's kingdom. And not just Israelites who could enter in uh, to these different spaces. And so he's speaking of things yet to come that it's going to, to overshadow everything that you think you know about this. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, and on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai to the prophet. 18, verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. And then he says, consider this. And Haggai would go on, and you can read that on your own this week, to encourage the people to say, get back into the work that the Lord has given you because God has big plans for what is to come. Let's jump back into Ezra, chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asheridon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. And so Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in this building, a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so there was people that dwelt in the region that had been brought by a previous Persian king and they weren't of the Israelites. They had lived in that area and they're like, let us in on this. Let us be a part of this. And really not because they wanted to be a part, but because they wanted to throw a wrench into the works as we see if we continue. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed the counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so 
we have these locals, and they're coming in, and they're putting fear in, in the hearts and in the minds, and, and they're physically threatening them, and they're bribing the counselors uh, to, to, to slow down the work of the Lord, and in fact, that's just what was going to happen. And, and so the work would come to a halt. Prophecy would come to a halt in that time for the next 16 years. And no work was really done on the temple during that time. Even though their hearts had been stirred for this purpose to come back, they got frustrated by the people in the area. And so we can look at this, and Haggai actually tells us about the time in between and what was going to take place. He didn't write it until later, but as he looks back, we can see what was taking place in those 16, 17 years of no work. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 It says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so because people were coming in opposition to them, they stopped building and and they were making excuses. You know, the time hasn't come. This, This really isn't the greatest time for this, you know. Let's wait till everything settles down, you know, and the government and and the officials are okay with us moving forward with God's work and, and then we'll get back to it. Have you ever had somebody say to you, hey, God told me to tell you. Have you ever had that? Like, I'm always like, whoa. All right, calm down. Now, now I'm not saying that God did not tell you to tell me something. I'm just saying you got to be real careful when you're taking that kind of a stance to speak for God. And yet, what are the people here doing? The time has not yet come. You know, God doesn't really want us to be working on his house at this time. They're speaking for God himself. And I think they had good intentions. You know, they just looked at the circumstances and how hostile it was towards them and the work that they were originally called to do. And they're like, ah, the time isn't right. You know, we're going to wait just a little bit. Everything's going to come together and then we will restart. Haggai chapter 1 verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lays in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God himself comes in. Are you sure? I mean, look at your houses. Like your grass has those nice lines that go back and forth in it. You know, your siding looks perfect. Uh, you, you've been able to add on to the master bathroom, right? And look at my house over here in shambles. Really? Consider yourself. When God says to you, consider yourself, you'd better pay attention. God's saying to you, figure it out. Like, you gotta, you got to think about this. You have to ex- ex- assess your hearts. Are you sure that what you're saying is true? Do you really speak for me with these things? You better take a minute and think this through. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I can get so busy working for God that I forget to work with God. You know, like I'm just having at it and I'm going with my 37 computer screens and I'm coming in here and, I, you know, like somebody's tapping me on the shirt. No, I don't have time for that. And God's like, it's me. How about you let me come along for the ride? Let me be a part of this with you. No, no, I've got too much to do for you, God. Just leave me alone. I tell you right now in this season, that's a difficulty for me. I got to remember, slow down. 
Take some time to worship. Take some time uh, uh, to, to read the word, not just in preparation for Sunday, but to spend time with God. I get so busy for him that I forget to do it with him. And the people were busy. They were working hard. They were rebuilding their homes, but they weren't worshiping with God. We often fall back into taking care of ourselves when looking after others gets too difficult, don't we? Like, well, I just need some time for self-care. <laughs> and I'm not saying you don't. But all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, you know, I'd love to volunteer in that ministry. I heard somebody uh, recently was just like, you know, I, I, I've just got other things that I'm working on right now. Really? What other things are better than working for the kingdom? What other things are so important and so pressing that you don't have time to work for what God has put in you? And so Haggai verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Even the work you're doing, you're not seeing much fruit from it. You're working hard, but not much is happening. Why? Because you're focused on the wrong things. God had stirred their hearts when this decree from King Cyrus went out, stirred their hearts to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls so that the people in that area could see the glory and power of their God and their painting, uh, their, their back deck. And they've refocused on their own things, on what is on their hearts and what's on their minds. I've talked with dozens of people over the years who live here in Florence now who have said, I don't know why God called me here, but we're here. I don't know why. I don't know why Florence, Oregon, of all the places I chose to retire, I chose to relocate, I chose to work, but here I am. Well, let me tell you, you're here to work for God's kingdom. He stirred something in your hearts, and he called you here to this town. And if you're sitting here watching, you're sitting with us, he called you to Florence Christian Church. And I know there's others in other great Bible-believing churches in town. He called us here for this time to be working for the kingdom, to be making a difference and bringing hope and light. We've forgotten sometimes that we're worried about our own homes when God said, I brought you here to work on my house, not to build this building, but to build his church, which is God's people, to be out there bring, being hope dealers and, and light bringers to a world that is dark and has so much that is pulling us apart. He says, I want you to bring people together. Haggai verse, chapter 1, verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever worked hard like that? Like, what have I been doing? I've been working so hard and I have nothing to show for it. He says, you're insatiable. You're never satisfied because you're working and you're toiling for the wrong things. Verse 10, therefore, the heavens above 
have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Because they forgot their calling, the result were these divine judgments, poor harvests, economic worries. You can't continue to ignore God's work without also ignoring worship. I think it's this connection right here. Give me just a sec. I've had this problem. And so... I want us to refocus. Zechariah had actually jumped in, another prophet, right about this same time, all these things happening in succession. And I want to look at what he said for a little bit this morning. It says, the angel of the Lord said, he's seeing this vision, the Lord of hosts, how long will uh, you have no mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years, speaking specifically of the exile. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who then talked to me. And the angel who talked with me said, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem." God was ready to restore these places, to restore the people of God for his glory. He was preparing to do a work through them if they would just follow his lead. And I can't help but to think we are in the same type of time that God is poised to be at work. He is ready to use you to bring hope and to bring light to your neighborhoods and to your clubs and to the people that you're in relationships with. And when better than now have people been more ready to receive that? All the world has to offer is disease and death and division and destruction. Who cannot hardly turn on the news anymore? And yet we need to be aware of the state of what's going on in our world because he wants to use us to bring unity to people, to bring hope to people in this time. He continues in verse 18, and I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them, to cast them down, the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Because God is poised to do a work, the forces of evil have also set up a counter-defensive. They have come against the people of God uh, throughout all of history, and the forces of evil are coming against the church and attacking it even now. 
I saw just this week John MacArthur, who's got a church in California, and they've been meeting, and different uh, judges have sided with them, and then others judges siding against them. And just this week, uh, the city pulled a permit for a parking lot that they've been using for the last 45 years. So no, you can't park there anymore. We're pulling our permit. The church is being attacked left and right all over, and some people are get fearful and, and cower. I, I just read uh, a thing about Smith Wiggleworth. You can look him up. He was a preacher. And uh, Smith Wiggleworth, it says that he woke up one night. I, I've heard it a couple of different ways, but he went downstairs. Let me just say that it seems like a real account, not just a story or exaggeration. He said, I went downstairs, and I felt this evil presence. And I looked over, and I saw what I knew was the devil himself. He says, I looked at him, and he said, oh, it's just you. And he went back upstairs and fell asleep because he knew where he stood. He knew the power of his God in this place, that he didn't have to be fearful of the forces that were coming against him. Not that he wasn't aware. In fact, he was so aware that he could recognize when he was looking evil in the face, but it didn't faze him because he knew his God, and he went right back to sleep. The other one is it was at the foot of his bed, and he said that and rolled over, went back to sleep. And so we have to choose how are we going to fight? Are we going to fight? Again, we talked about fighting last week in prayer. We talked about fighting with the way that we rebuild relationships uh, of brokenness. And and sometimes, you know, we don't even want to enter conversations with family members because we know it's going to be divisive on some things. Let's continue to focus on God, the one who brings us together chapter 2 of Zechariah, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. This thought of a city without walls is a dangerous one. You needed to have walls to protect you so that your people who had uh, land and were, were, had livestock on the outskirts could run into the city and hide behind the walls, and yet you could only fit so many people inside of those walls. And he said, I will build a city without walls. A city without walls means that there's nothing stopping anybody from entering into God's presence. He's talking about the day that would come, the new covenant, when God would say, this isn't just for the Israelites, this is for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. There is nothing stopping anybody from entering the holy city. And then he goes on and he says, I will be her wall, a wall of fire, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst, tolling back to the time when they came out of Egypt And they were led by day by a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire that they knew the presence of God was with them. He says, I will be their protection. They don't need protection 
from human hands and, and, and cities built uh, with walls of brick and mortar and wood, I will be as a wall of fire and I will guard you. And all are welcome. This is the message of hope that we have, that all are welcomed into God's kingdom, that there's nothing we can do to earn it, that there's nothing that we can do to deserve it. We just have to accept this gift of eternal life that has been given to us. And all of this in the Old Testament, it's, it's interesting because some people will say, you know, we don't really have to look at the Old Testament or follow the Old Testament, all that. But the truth is that the Old Testament was all about Jesus. It was all about talking about the ultimate hope that we would have in him. And so he invites everyone in. Let me just read those words again. Say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be her to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being the victor. God, that the war is won and yet there's still battles to be fought. God, help us to see the places that you put us God, help us to have clarity of how we can uh, just live for you in such a way that brings hope and brings light into dark situations. God, help us in this politically and racially charged uh, environment that we live today to talk about how we're all equal. God, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all broken. We've all made mistakes, and we're all welcome and invited into the family. God, we should be the first ones to be bringing people together. Help us just with our words and our spirits, our attitudes, God, with our online posts, God, that we uh, can be hope bearers. God, you are good. You have won already, and so we just worship you and you alone this morning. Continue to help us to dig into your word to see how you're leading uh, this particular church. God, you have specific things that you've called us to, and we want to walk in those things. God, bring it to light. God, bring it to our understanding. You are so good, and we worship you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.